0: Welcome to The Vast Majority, my name is Micah Utrecht, Managing Editor for Jacobin. Bernie Sanders has drawn on the New Deal throughout his campaign. You heard it in his recent speech on democratic socialism, in which he argued that his platform is one that would complete the unfinished business of former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Liberals have been quick to point out that democratic socialism and the New Deal are very distinct from one another. And they're not exactly wrong, but something is a bit off in dismissing the New Deal as not real socialism. Seth Ackerman writes in Jacobin that liberals who dismiss Bernie's association of the New Deal with socialism in some form, quote, sound like a bunch of Maoist sectarians. It also doesn't get at the truly radical pro-worker transformation that the New Deal brought to American society. Seth is the executive editor of Jacobin. He wrote a piece for jacobinmag.com called Why Bernie Talks About the New Deal, and we talked about that piece as well as the idea that the New Deal was racist. Seth, hello. Hello, Micah. So, Seth, was the New Deal socialist?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, the reason I decided to write this article... It was because I was struck by the way that a lot of liberal pundits, Democratic Party-type people were reacting to Bernie Sanders' socialism speech with, uh, with a line that reminded me um, kind of surreally uh, of the most ultra-left people that you encounter on, like, Internet message boards, where, you know, it's like, that's not really socialism, man. And so while there's obviously a certain – there's a grain of truth in that, that, you know, first of all, FDR did not – never identified as a socialist, uh, nor did he or his administration ever lay out a plan or or an ambition to uh, collectivize the means of production. But at the same time, I thought that these uh, pundits were going a little bit far, too far, because at the time um, – the New Deal was seen by both socialists and by the enemies of socialism as, uh, as, as a, a form of, I guess you could say, kind of socialism in government. And when you think about it, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's obviously a longstanding tension between the idea of being a socialist, which involves usually the concept of kind of a, a, a really convulsive transformation of the economy and society, with being an elected leader uh, who has to govern according to the rules and the laws and the institutions of your country, uh, there's not, you know, uh, outside of, a, of an actually revolutionary situation, you're rarely going to get the opportunity as a socialist to be elected and then go for it and then just, you know, uh, socialize all of the, uh, the, whole, the whole economy. So in the meantime, what do you do? Um, and that was actually a question that had never had an answer before, uh, before Roosevelt's election. I guess you could maybe, around the same time uh, as he was elected, uh, there was a socialist uh, government or at least a coalition government in Sweden, and then you had uh, Bloom's government in France. But really, there, was, there, was, there were no examples of what socialism in, in government would, would look like. Uh, and yet, Roosevelt, I guess in an irony of history, a guy who was not a socialist, ended up Um, governing in a way that socialists around the world looked at as kind of what they would do if they found themselves in this non-revolutionary but governing situation. Uh, and It was also of course the right-wing and centrist enemies of socialism who said over and over again that, that what FDR was doing looked much more like the the socialist platform than it looked like the actual Democratic Party platform. So when these pundits kind of laugh at the idea that that Bernie Sanders would get up and say, my vision of democratic socialism, if you want to understand what that is, look at the New Deal. Uh, on the one hand, you can credit them with pointing out that he is not painting a vision of the future that goes beyond the kind of governing socialism of, of New Deal type uh, policy. That's true. But on the other hand, what he's doing is essentially pointing to uh, one of the central models of uh, uh, historical examples of a model of socialist style governance. And so there's really nothing ludicrous or fantastic about it.
0: I feel like both in this speech that he gave about democratic socialism, as well as the one that he gave in the last election at Georgetown, they were billed as this kind of People expected to get this end-all, be-all definition from Bernie Sanders about what democratic socialism meant. But instead of giving that definition, he often points to either programs and policies like the New Deal or just ideas about certain goods being rights for people like health care or like any number of things. He, he points to these things and he says, this is what I mean by democratic socialism. He doesn't give the totality of what the democratic socialism socialist division means but he points to things that are sort of leading in that direction right that that are you know decommodified goods or uh policies that spread you know that that spread the vast amount of wealth in america around uh and provided all kinds of infrastructure and workers rights and all kinds of other things like the new deal so he sort of is pointing in the direction of democratic socialism instead of giving the complete definition of it
1: yeah and I I think you know you can also credit him with making some noises about uh, the idea of democracy democracy extending the principle of democracy to the economy he's he's had comments like that which certainly do point in the direction of something beyond just decommodification beyond just you know uh, providing guarantees of certain goods that people have rights to but that in itself I mean decommodification democracy at work um, these, uh, you know, these are these are all like key elements of of what socialism has always meant. You know, uh, when at the very beginning uh, of socialism, it, uh, the the earliest models of socialism that people talked about were uh, would sound kind of remarkably modest uh, or moderate to us today. You know, the, in the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, the first actual socialist mass movement in France. Um, it was a kind of vague what they meant by it, but what they generally meant by it was some sort of situation where, like, the government would give people loans to start cooperatives. Uh, and that was part of a program of what was what was at the time a, revo- a literally revolutionary movement with barricades and all the rest of it. Um, and the, the meanings of socialism have always been in flux and have changed depending on the circumstances. The economy and society and politics changes over time, and so do definitions of socialism. Um, I think that you know, in in evaluating how we should look at Bernie Sanders' relationship with the concept of socialism, um, we should remember that uh, that socialism, in properly understood, has in its the people who really understood how how politics works, how mass movements work, um, have especially Marx and Engels. They always said that um, it is much more important to uh, to have a movement and a, a real movement of workers with a with an understanding that they are trying to um, advance their interests, uh, than it is to have a perfectly doctrinally correct program. When you know when Engels talked about American politics in the late 19th century, he said he much preferred the Knights of Labor uh, or the quote unquote agrarian reformers to the doctrinally Marxist-correct Socialist Labor Party at the time, which was, you know, the uh, hyper-Orthodox Marxists, uh, who sounded kind of like Marxist robots when they talked. Um, He much preferred the sort of messy, uh, ideologically incoherent Knights of Labor to them, uh, because they actually represented a, a real movement of workers Uh, advancing towards some kind of egalitarian vision in opposition to the established order
0: and actually were people who were wrestling with the real contradictions that one faces when one goes up against the established order right like they were trying to figure out a way forward and the difficulties they were facing were the result of them actually being in the arena of real life political action
1: yeah, it's very easy to sit, you know, on the Internet, presumably, in front of your computer and type away at socialism, you know, and you can give the absolutely correct definition. But that's that what we do every
0: day at com. We try to do
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of typing. We, we type socialism. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that actually, you know, it's, it's not it's not a very Marxist approach to socialism. So, uh, I mean, that really resembles, you know, the the cook blueprints, you know, for the future cook shop, recipes for the cook shop of the future that Marx uh, had a lot of contempt for um, so, yeah, you know, you, you wrestle with the you, you, you're you never at the place that you want to be, you're at the place that you are um, and you have to start with the realities that you're grappling with at the time I think that's what, if you were to in two thousand go back to 2015 or 2014 or whatever, when, when the American left was at such a low point uh, and you were to say how in the world would you try to revive socialist politics starting from here? Uh, I think that the kinds of, um, in the absence of a ma- of a real mass movement, I think that the the kind of approach that Bernie Sanders took would be probably the the best, the least bad solution, uh, f- for figuring out how to how to move forward. I, I think most people would probably agree with that. He Bernie Sanders, I guess, could have run for president and said, "I am running on a platform of." collective ownership of all the means of production and, you know, you can have a planned economy or whatever else. Um, but what would really be the point of that? Would that, to what extent would that really be contributing to the advance of socialist politics? You could have a debate. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are some people who would try to make the argument that that would have been a better approach than what Bernie Sanders ended up doing. But I think that you could make a really much better argument that this is what you would do if you were trying actually to advance a, a socialist movement, you know, and do your best in
0: that in that vein. I will only support Bernie Sanders' campaign if he refu- if he refers to the United States exclusively as the Great Satan. Nothing less I, than that will I
1: accept. Well, you're a moderate because <laughs> I insist on America with three K's, <laughs> and he has to pronounce each K. <laughs> uh,
0: so it sounds like what you're saying is. Not that people are necessarily wrong to point out that the democratic socialist vision, at the very least, goes beyond some of the things that Bernie are, is talking about, but that it is a wrong and kind of sectarian approach, whether it comes from a actual sectarian Marxist or from a uh, finger-wagging uh, liberal in a mainstream newspaper, that it is wrong to take that approach towards, towards his vision of socialism, to the, just to – emphasize on how it falls short rather than how it moves the ball forward of class struggle in America.
1: Yeah, and I think that nobody can deny at this point that his approach as kind of uh, moderate, perhaps even excessively moderate uh, as it sounds, has so far uh, objectively advanced socialist politics, if only because you could say, well, uh, he ran for president in 2015, 2016, and then there was suddenly uh, 50,000 members of, of, a, of a socialist organization, which we hadn't had in this country for many years. So I think it would be hard to make the argument that it did not advance socialist politics. So Socialism is now something that people talk about. And what they talk about is not just Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism, of this kind of like New Deal-ish socialism, but people are actually talking about more than that. I mean, the, the ideas... That go beyond New Deal type welfare state, you know, Nordic whatever socialism, are in the air in a way that they weren't five or ten years ago. People talk about the Meidner more. There are more people who know what the Meidner plan is uh, in this country now by a factor of God knows how, you know, a hundred than there were five years ago. So that's that's exactly what you would like to see. Um, what what I find interesting is that you know the this idea the, the criticism that this is not real socialism is coming not from these like online uh, internet warriors but from like these liberal mainstream pundits like uh, Chris Hayes or uh, what's his name Jordan Weissman Um, they're the ones who are they're they're kind of aghast at at, at what Sanders is saying.
0: So why is that is it just that they're trying to fashion whatever they can grab near them you know as a as a weapon, like, they just, ah, I've caught you in a lie, a contradiction, like, you're saying this about, this is socialism, but actually it's not, or what's
1: going on there? Uh, no, I think that this, it, it's really more specific than that. Um, I think that the, that rhetorical strategy from these pundits is just kind of the mirror image of what Republicans have always done with the word socialism, which is to use it as a scare word. Uh, so the republicans always accuse anybody from you know bill clinton to barack obama of being a socialist in, on based on the premise that if you convince people that they're socialists the idea of socialism is so horrific to the to the l- large electorate that they will run away from those candidates and i think that these democratic or you know liberal pundits start from the same premise and so they uh are horrified by the idea that a figure who has now sort of forced himself into the into the Democratic Party politics. He's now a leading figure, even though he's not a, a Democrat technically, or he has he's not a registered Democrat. He is a major figure. You know, he's one of the most popular uh, political figures among Democrats. Um, so he is he's sort of like a a wing of the Democratic Party who is now forcing them to associate themselves you know vicariously with the concept of socialism they think that i think that they think it's number one it's bad politics for the democratic party and i think that there's also like a personal dimension to it i think that people who buy into the 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 scare image of socialism really do see it as something that you would you on a personal level you don't want to be associated with it so so bernie sanders is too close to them politically you know institutionally speaking because he's a democrat and and in a, a lot of other ways uh, for them to feel comfortable with with him being a socialist, so it's important to deny that he's a socialist. He's just a New Deal, whatever. But actually, New Deal, whatever. The New Deal itself was, you know, it's the image of it that we've been left with. The historical memory of it is often a lot more sort of uh, warm and fuzzy and consensual, like many other things, like Martin Luther King or whatever, than than the actual historical reality was. So
0: you talked about the way that the New Deal is remembered in this sort of warm and fuzzy way. I think Cornel West once called it the Santa Clausification of uh, Martin Luther King as sort of similar dynamic with the New Deal that we don't really remember how bold and how radical it really was. Can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of it for people who are not like New Deal scholars or something? What kind of transformation, the new transformations, plural I should say, the new deal wrought in american society and creating a society that was much more uh, that gave workers and average people much more power
1: yeah i mean number that's i think number 1 um, i have a there's a quote that i put in that that article uh, from eric hobsbawm where he's uh, in his memoirs he's like reminiscing about how he and his fellow communists in uh, in germany and britain in the 30s how they viewed Roosevelt and he was saying that basically they had tremendous admiration for Roosevelt he was the only quote unquote bourgeois politician in any country uh, that they felt they could if they were if they had been Americans they could not they would not only have voted for him but voted for him enthusiastically um, and and the reason for that one of the, as he gives some some reasons why they had such a positive view of him but but one of the main reasons and this is something that I think Is kind of jarring if you have the the Santa Claus uh, image of the New Deal in in your mind. Is he? He says, you know, he talks about how this was visibly a government for the poor and the unions, and it was hated, loathed, and denounced by uh, the big business and the the American capitalists. Who, you know, for them, European communists at the time, the American capitalist was sort of like the cartoon villain of of you know world uh, politics. and that is, I think, the side of the New Deal that people have forgotten—the the degree to which New Deal, Roosevelt's politics were a kind of were a class conflict kind of politics. Um, that, you know, and in that that's a point, also a point where the New Deal mirrors Bernie Sanders' approach. You know, people often are asking, well, what's the real difference between Bernie Sanders, let's say, and Elizabeth Warren? You know, they have so many similar policies, and one of the main differences, of course, is that Bernie Sanders sort of names the enemy. In a way and, and polarizes draws a polarized view of politics in a way that, that other you know even very progressive candidates and politicians don't. And that's the, also the approach that FDR took which was even more um, had even more impact because he was the President of the United States. So you know when he gives a speech you know accepting the nomination in 1936 saying that they that the whole business class of the United States was, a, was arranged against him and hated him and he welcomed their hatred. That is, you know, compare that with, like, you know, Barack Obama, uh, who, you know, talked about how we're all Americans, we're all one country, the bankers, or even he told the bankers that he was the one person standing between them and the pitchforks. Um, and, and it was reflected, it wasn't just rhetoric from Roosevelt. It was reflected in what was going on in the country as a whole. First of all, we're talking about the New Deal, especially from 1934 or 35 onward. When, when Roosevelt first came in, he was, that was not his politics at all. Uh, he was a sort of—he was more of an Elizabeth Warren type, I guess you could say. He was a progressive Democrat. Um, what happened was that there was a a labor explosion in '34, '35, with a with some enormous mass strikes, a very sort of um, uh, uh, sort of chaotic and and um, and aggressive uh, labor action by uh, workers who didn't hadn't had unions in the first place. And this was the the origin of uh, the industrial union movement, the the big industrial unions that eventually became the core of Roosevelt's base. And these unions were organized by socialists and communists. Um, And they they adopted a class struggle kind of uh, attitude. And they adopted um, political programs that reflected that kind of socialist politics. So when Roosevelt decided that he needed to embrace that movement, um, that that's how he was going to sort of get, regain his footing at a time when he was sort of on shaky ground, 34, 35. Uh, he went all in. He committed to that. And um, and so he, there, was a, there was a way in which his way of of, of doing politics reflected a kind of, I'm going to take sides in, in, in the contest between labor and capital. Uh, I'm not just going to say I'm going to make sure all parties get along but I'm actually going to take sides on the side of, of labor.
0: One of the principal differences, and a kind of obvious one, is that you mentioned that Roosevelt was responding to these labor upsurges that were happening, like the 1934 general strikes in San Francisco and Toledo and Minneapolis and all of these this huge upsurge in worker militancy that was happening, and then he had to respond to that militancy. Bernie obviously is not responding to that militancy he it seems like he's trying to actively stoke it he is mm-hmm. using his campaign to try to get people out to picket lines he's sort of stoking the sense of class conflict in society with i think the hope that it will his actions plus you know, the objective conditions of work and wages and and you know health care debt and all the rest of it in the society leading to more, that kind of upsurge that helped produce the new deal
1: yeah that's the fascinating thing about this and i mean that's also that's a strategy that has never really been tried on the left and i think it, it's born of a kind of a desperate situation um politically and uh, you know it, it makes a lot of people on the left a little nervous it's not the way that you're supposed to do things it's uh, certainly like i've you know i was brought up on the left to believe that you know it Change doesn't happen because a candidate runs for office. I mean, I, and that's true on some level. But on the other hand, you know what what Sanders is doing is 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 more is not just the idea that well we elect him and then he's going to pass all the laws that make things better. It's like it's uh, like you say he as a he's trying to use his platform uh, as a politician as a candidate to to sort of create put ideas in people's heads uh, and create a sense of momentum that is not there right now and that actually I say that, that there's no precedent for that but in some minor ways you can see the precedent in the well maybe not even minor you can see the precedent in the New Deal because when that upsurge happened and there were sort of premonitions of it in like 1933, um, you know a lot of the labor organizers involved in that said that um, that when there was suddenly after all these years with workers feeling cowed and not being willing to take risks and strike, suddenly they were. And the question was why, and you know, especially it was after the uh, National Recovery Act was was passed, which had some provisions in it that were kind of ambiguous about labor. You know, should not be prejudice the rights of workers to organize unions or whatever. It's pretty innocuous language, but that combined with the sense that Roosevelt was on that the president was on their side. Um, Right, which had, the CIO
0: or, organizers then used as they were talking to workers. Right, they told these workers that President Roosevelt wants you to join a union.
1: Exactly, President Roosevelt wants you to join a union. They would, in the like in steel towns in uh, Pennsylvania, where they had these like Eastern European workers who ha- who had never um, had a, a permanent union they would in nineteen thirty six when they now that they had this new you know mine, the mine workers or the steel workers they would organize clubs to sort of encourage people to vote for 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 Roosevelt it was and there, it, it was the Roosevelt Club you would join the Roosevelt Club you would have a Roosevelt pin on your shirt um, and that was like seen as a way of, of 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 doing labor organization so there was this sort of cross fertilization between it's very strange you know it, it actually is it's kind of like the the old description of what 19th century like second international socialism was supposed to be where there was supposed to be this nexus between the the party that enunciates the the goals and the ideas and then the unions the the industrial organization which are the sort of muscle and the day-to-day, you know, interface for workers to exercise power and those two things were supposed to be in symbiosis. And here you had in the New Deal a situation where there was no labor there was no socialist party. There was no you know the president was from a completely capitalist party, uh, and yet he sort of acted as a, almost like a one man labor party. It just through his the image he projected, the rhetoric that he put forward, and of course you know some of the policies that that he that he adopted like like the Wagner Act
0: the other thing that has been in the discourse lately about the New Deal is, is a kind of perpetual question, it seems, over the last couple of years, is whether or not the New Deal was racist. And this is not really related to Bernie's speech, but just something that we're constantly debating as we're talking about the legacy of the New Deal. Um, can you talk about that idea, where it comes from, and maybe why it doesn't quite encapsulate all of the, uh, the nuances of that New Deal history?
1: I think that, like a lot of sort of uh, tropes that become heavily circulated uh, in political discourse on the left, online discourse, um, this I think came bubbled up from academia, where uh, the you know the historiography of the New Deal. I don't know how much of it came from history, from or from other disciplines, but there was in maybe in the '80s a kind of a turn. Uh, towards deep skepticism t- towards any kind of these like universalistic political projects like the New Deal or socialism or anything like that, and um, and somehow in the last decade or so, th- these tropes about the New Deal, uh, the the racist New Deal, have come to the fore, and there's it's not as if there is not, no kernel of truth to it because at, at the very least, I mean, just you just have to stand to reason. The New Deal took place in the 1930s, which was like just after the absolute nadir of uh, the the black condition, the black experience in the United States.
0: Right, it's like the height of Jim Crow southern racism.
1: The height, not only the height of Jim, Jim Crow southern racism, but the height of the degree to which a, a total monolithic consensus in white society about the inferiority and uh, and uh, and um, uh, incompetence of black of black people to exercise equal citizenship rights had become you know there had there had in the past been at least the sort of traces the the, the vestiges of a kind of abolitionist tradition in certain parts of the United States um, that believed in black equality but it had been almost completely stamped out by the 1910s 1920s and it was in you know intellectual culture and political culture were suffused with this kind of social Darwinist eugenicist set of ideas Um and so, you, so you're, you're starting from the absolute nadir, the absolute low point um, of racism in the, in the United States. All of the institutions in American society are completely imbued by these ideas and by these practices. Uh, and then Roosevelt comes in and, of course, his mandate is not to do anything in particular with respect to race, you know, to, to race or racial equality, but because he, but in, he, there's this absolute economic emergency. That's his job is to deal with this em- economic emergency that of course affects blacks more than anybody else uh, when you have t- unemployment rate of twenty five or twenty-five percent um, among blacks it was undoubtedly they don't have actual statistics but it was undoubtedly you know probably twice that uh, so um so inevitably, you, it's very—it becomes very easy to find points of contact between these ra- racist institutions and the New Deal, or something that you can attribute to the New Deal. And I, I'll talk about maybe more about that—the specific examples—in a second. But I have to say that if you're trying to evaluate this this idea of the New the New Deal was racist, you have a very curious set of facts that you have to confront, uh, and or explain away. And maybe the most important set of facts is that. Uh, African Americans had spent – as long as they were – had in any places in the United States had the right to vote, they had been Republicans since the origin of the Republican Party, uh, you know, since the Civil War. Um, Overwhelmingly blacks voted Republican in every single election at the national level all the way up through – actually through 1932 when when blacks uh, were the only group that remained loyal to the Republican – to Herbert Hoover in 1932. And then in 1936, for the first time ever in the history of black voting, uh, they en masse switched to the Democratic Party and remained overwhelmingly Democratic ever since then. And that was because of their overwhelmingly positive reception of Roosevelt and the New Deal. Uh, So... It it it's strange. It, it, it's hard to explain how, if the New Deal had was like particularly racist, how it that escaped the the knowledge of uh, black people who actually lived under that uh, government at the time. The perceptions among blacks were overwhelmingly the opposite. Um, a Philip Randolph, for example, who was one of the few black leaders who actually had a uh, a concrete mass constituency behind him of people, you know, who, whose livelihoods and and conditions. Um, he had he helped to organize their their uh, action towards um you know he said uh, he said that, that roosevelt was uh did had, had done more for the race than any president um in history I, which you know maybe maybe he went too far cuz abraham lincoln maybe would be a would at least be in the running um but uh but the, the new deal was actually the first uh, Presidential administration, the Roosevelt administration was the first presidential administration that, um, in which, uh, aggressive, actively anti-racist uh, figures within the administration, you, uh, proactively used the machinery of the federal government to promote racial equality since the since Reconstruction. There had never, there had not, there had been no administration that had done that since Reconstruction, and it, it certainly was not the case with all or even most of the figures in the administration. And Roosevelt himself was not a particularly anti-racist; he was neither particularly racist nor particularly anti-racist by the by the uh, by the uh, standards of the time. But there were figures within the administration uh, who actually came out of careers in which th- that they had devoted themselves to combating. Uh, racial inequality. People like Aubrey Williams from the National Youth Administration, Harry Hopkins, uh, who was one of Roosevelt's closest advisors and his like fixer man, um, had been you know president of the local NAACP, um, and Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, had a tremendous um, commitment to uh, to the issue of uh, black equality. But more importantly, the origins of the modern civil rights movement in this country stem from the New Deal period when. These industrial unions, the CIO unions, were organizing, and for the first time, uh, in contrast to the old AFL craft unions, which which were which were highly exclusionary, they very much wanted to organize black workers uh, in these all-encompassing unions that would have the kind of uh, mass that would allow them to shut down whole industries uh, in strikes. Uh, they, those industrial unions like the UAW in Detroit, for example, were forced to, and often, you know, were organized by, by people who had had a prior commitment to, to racial equality, but they were forced to go to the black community organized in these various localities, often to churches or to local NAACPs and say, you know, we want a part, we want and need you and we need a partnership with you and, um, and that partnership between the labor movement and the civil rights movement, both it's both the sort of institutional civil rights movement of the NAACP and the more sort of scrappy, aggressive militant um, communist aligned organizations in a lot of these northern cities, uh, they formed a nexus. the labor movement the, the the left of the labor movement and the civil rights movement formed a nexus that became the, that became the backbone out of which the modern civil rights movement that we remember grew out of so you know liberalism in the United States. Um, post-war liberalism was was institutionally based on this conjunction of the CIO and the NAACP.
0: And to be clear, no one would argue that the New Deal succeeded in challenging white supremacy. I mean, there were, of course, huge compromises that were made that did not challenge the, the system of white supremacy in the South or in anywhere else in the country. But to me, to simply say Oh well, the New Deal was racist, and to write it off does not really get anywhere near encompassing the totality of what the civil, what uh, the New Deal actually accomplished, and in fact doesn't take seriously the impact that it eventually had on dismantling racism, dismantling dismantling white supremacy in America. Um, Yeah,
1: well, let's let's talk about a little bit about some of the compromises and the and the um, complicity that the that New Deal the New Deal had with the with White supremacy. So, number one, Roosevelt never uh, um, tried to make any real effort to get an anti lynching legislation passed. He never um, uh, tried to frontally confront the poll tax, although he criticized it a lot. Uh, he didn't try to introduce legislation in Congress to, to abolish it. Um, the whole sort of standard civil rights agenda of the era that the NAACP had been fighting for, uh, he didn't really uh, aggressively pursue almost any of it and the, the reason for that was everybody knew it was because he relied on a democratic majority in congress much of which was in the south and the, most of those uh, members of congress would never vote for any of those things and in fact would start to rebel against the whole new deal sort of uh, program if he were to do that that was the argument that was made it was the argument that was that was sort of in in the air nobody, nobody denied it at the time and so but it gets worse than that i mean uh the the i think the probably the most Specific institutional uh, type of com- complicity that the New Deal had with uh, with with uh, white supremacy at the time, uh, and this is the point that you hear often uh, from from the people who talk about this trope of the racist New Deal, is in the area of housing and segregation. So when Roosevelt came into office, uh, you know, the entire economy was collapsed and the housing market and the banks, which are interlinked, you know, because the banks financed housing and when the house values collapsed, the banks collapsed. And so that was one of the main uh, elements of the economy that uh, the government now had to revive. Well, the problem was, like I said, we were at the nadir of racial inequality in, in America. And so over the previous three or four decades, this vast apparatus had already uh, emerged in the north, in northern cities, for in, imposing and preserving uh, very rigid racial segregation in cities, and that apparatus included, you know, local zoning, zoning boards, real estate boards, um, uh, banks, the local banks that that extended the mortgages, uh, the appraisers. I mean, this whole like e- ecosystem of people who um, who who manage and, and uh, deal with the local real estate, real estate values, um, had – had all of those institutions had become completely oriented towards maintaining racial segregation, not, not because just out of a pure racial animus, but for financial reasons, because it was believed and understood that uh, if you had a mostly white neighborhood and black started some black – even just a few black people started moving in, then all the whites would leave and the property values would collapse – And then, what would happen to the banks who extended the mortgages for those houses? And then, what would happen to, you know, the real estate agents? You know, every so there was a whole set of of powerful interests at the local level in every single city in the country that was deeply invested in maintaining this uh, this form of very rigid racial segregation. So when the the New Deal uh, had to address that, revive the housing market, which was in a state of complete collapse, uh, one of the Key things that they did was they created this thing called the Federal Housing Administration, which insured mortgages. And by insuring mortgages, it gave banks the confidence to issue more mortgages. But uh, in 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 insuring the mortgages, they had to make sure that the FHA was operating like any insurance company would do and be prudentially, you know, be, be financially prudent. Only insure the mortgages that are financially sound that that have that have a, a good likelihood of being paid off. And So in other words, they inserted themselves into this housing market that had already over the previous several decades developed into this – developed this whole rigid complex system to enforce racial segregation and the FHA just sort of completely – adopted, you know, just adopted the practices that had already been entrenched there, uh, in large part because the FHA itself was run by real estate interests. So that continued for decades and segregation as it existed over the subsequent decades uh, was perpetuated by that by that FHA.
0: So your point is that the FHA did not introduce white supremacy into the housing market, it entered into a housing market in which that white supremacy was already there. And we could fault New Deal uh, officials, Roosevelt administration officials for not taking it on more head on. But the idea that they themselves are responsible for this racist system uh, related to housing is one that's wrong.
1: Yeah, nobody could argue that because, I mean, if you read any of the classic texts on northern segregation, it it emerged, you know, decades before the New Deal. It was already completely in place by the time the New Deal was there. Uh, You could accuse, I guess, you could accuse the New Deal of complicity. Uh, it didn't create the system, but it was complicit in it, uh, and the idea was if you were going to revive the housing the housing market, um, you needed to uh, go along with the practices that had already entrenched themselves. But, you know, you know it, the, the other point is that because the New Deal for the first time since Reconstruction had elements of the state that were committed to racial equality, you also had in the housing sector, the housing field, um, you had a uh, uh, initiatives that actually were pushing in the opposite direction so that you know you start you actually start seeing the first efforts by people some people in the government to force the FHA to change its practices in 1948 so you know right when Harry Truman finally uh, has the culmination of the sort of the New Deal's partnership with with uh, with um, civil rights groups, and he finally, like, announces that he's, he's against segregation in the militaries for all these uh, equa- measures of equality. One of the things that he does is he pressures the FHA to start changing those practices. So, I mean, in the long run, I think that uh, the New Deal tradition, the New Deal legacy, probably uh, contributed more ultimately to the efforts at desegregation in the 60s and 70s uh, than it did to actually creating more segregation uh, in the 30s. Seth, thank you very much. Thank you, Micah.
0: The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.